Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship you this day. Lord, we ask now that you might warm our hearts to hear your word. That you might give us sight to see the glories within. That you might unstop our ears. And more so that you would let it take root in our hearts. That you would grow in us the power of your word. That we might be more like your son, Christ Jesus. Father, I pray this morning that my confidence would be simply in the fact that it is your word, I declare. And that you would protect me from my own arrogance. Father, I pray this, that we would hear you speak this morning. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. Well, I was thrilled when I opened the bulletin to see that Kristen had worked her magic and gotten all the verses uh, in this long section here. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18 to 31. This is the word of God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both to Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The word of our Lord. When I was young, uh, between the ages of nine and about 16, I really looked forward to the gifts that a certain aunt would send us around Christmas. She was my rich aunt. And it's fun to have a rich aunt. Now, at the time, she was spiritually indifferent. In fact, even more so, a little bit of, there was a touch of mockery. In fact, on my mom's side at Christmas, after too many glasses of wine, they used to mock us all, the missionary family. But she brought great gifts to us kids so she was really easy to love. 
Sometimes she would deliver them herself. She would drive up to our house in her super shiny Mercedes 450 SL convertible, and I was enthralled as a young teen. It didn't matter what she got us. It was a great gift, and we loved it. I remember bragging about her to my uh, friends, uh, kind of like what I'm doing now, uh, singing her praises, extolling her virtues. I don't ever remember once recalling that I deserved any of those gifts. I don't ever remember telling my friends that the gifts were proof that I was such an amazing nephew. I may have thought, to my shame, that she was required, that she ought to give us gifts because she was richer than we were. That was wrong thinking. But it was still the focus on her as a gift giver. This is Paul's desire for us as well. He wants us to focus on the gift giver. And so he moves from addressing the divisions in the church, those various groups that identified themselves as following Apollos or following Peter or whomever. And Paul wants to remind us again where to look, that if we put our focus on God, the gift giver, divisions will melt away. If you skip to the last verse in our section, he writes, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is where we're headed this morning. More specifically, Paul wants to show us Christ. And even more specifically, he wants the audience to look to the reality of Christ crucified. We'll see, that's a reality that turns things upside down. That's a reality that seems both foolish to the wise and yet makes fools wise. And as such, Christ, we'll see, is truly worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our boasting. Now, to move his audience, and it's the Corinthian audience that he's speaking to, Paul engages in what many scholars call a classical argument. He posits a thesis in verse 18. The thesis is that the word of the cross functions doubly. Folly to those who are perishing, power to those who are being saved. He follows this thesis with a proof. Here he uses a scriptural quote from Isaiah. And then he asks multiple rhetorical questions in verse 20. And finally, he gives several arguments in favor of this thesis throughout the section. And in fact, all the way into verse 5 of chapter 2. It's that thesis that the cross serves doubly as both folly and as wisdom that forms our first two points in the sermon outline. It's two different points viewed differently, of course, depending on what group one is. If you're in the group of those who are perishing, then you're likely to see the cross as folly. If you're in the group of those being saved, then you're likely to see the cross as the power of God. Paul presents us with two groups of people, just two groups, and he's not alone. Throughout the scriptures, we see that regularly. There are two groups. You see it all the way back in the beginning in Genesis. Sons of Cain, godly, the, lines of, uh, the godly line of Seth. In, in the Older Testament, children of Israel and the Gentiles. There are divisions both in the Old and the New Testament, those within the faith, those outside of the faith. There are many more. The classic one is 
one that Jesus himself speaks about at the judgment, where there will be a division between the goats and the sheep. And Paul presents us with two groups of people as well. If you come on Monday to the church and you get in early enough, early before Pastor Lloyd is off to pray with some other pastors and play a little basketball, you might get a rare glimpse of him without a tie. That's when he showcases some of his truly excellent t-shirts. I especially love the one that states, there are two kind of people in the world. Those that can extrapolate. That's all the shirt says. Here in our text, Paul also makes two divisions. There are the wise and the fool. There is wisdom and folly. There is weak and powerful. There are those who are perishing and those who are being saved. There's no middle way. There's no third party. There's no group that's kind of being saved and kind of perishing. There are only two options. I mention this because our culture seems to revel in ambiguity. And we as Christians have added, we've added all sorts of shades of gray into things that really ought not to be gray. Issues like the sanctity of life, the the gender confusion that is swirling in our culture. And we do it in theology as well. We've complicated theological doctrines of all the way from creation to God's final judgment. Even if there are conversations there, we've just added a multiplicity of gray. We regularly bow to cultural pressure to not have strong convictions on anything if it's opposed to what is culturally uh, preferred as an opinion. But I submit to you there's a better way. There's a way that we can be both gracious and confident. You can know something. You can be confident about it as truth and still be gracious as you present it to others. At this point, you may say, all right, what does this have to do with the text? And that would be a good question, and I hope that you'll see that the answer is that in Paul's day, the church was doing a very similar thing. The people there were pushing ideas. They were dividing people into the wise and the foolish, the powerful and the poor, and then simultaneously the wise among them were advocating for all types of confusing and ambiguous ideas. Pastor Lloyd remarked that it was eloquence that was prized. It wasn't facts and reason. It was eloquence. As a result, the Christians in Corinth were becoming highly susceptible to chase after novel ideas, after curiosities in the faith. If something sounded interesting, especially if it was new, they were likely to pursue it. The wise in Corinth boasted in their wisdom. They had all sorts of eloquent arguments as to why certain Christian ideas were not necessary. And it seems that one of their favorite targets was the cross. Paul starts off this section by stating that it is the word of the cross that highlights these vast differences, these irreconcilable differences between these two groups. And the first group he addresses are the wise by human standards. And perhaps they were better educated. They, they likely lived in a better socioeconomic circle. Uh, therefore, they were likely able to afford a better diet work more reasonable hours, 
and therefore they were likely to be in better health. So it's this group, the healthier, the wealthier, and the wiser group that Paul mentions first, that sees the cross as folly. Immediately, Paul shows his hand in verse 19. He's about to show that it's not the cross, but rather their objections, their perspective that is foolish. The real folly is that they hold to ineffective reasoning, eloquence that was ineffective, and therefore they were rejecting that very thing that could have actually saved them. And Paul accomplishes this by quoting Isaiah 29, 14 where we see that God is turning things upside down. Wisdom, that is what the world counts as wisdom, is being destroyed. Paul makes this point again, so he doubles it. This time he changes the word. It's not wisdom, but now it's discernment. And God is thwarting the discernment of the world. Paul continues. This time he's almost taunting or challenging his audience. Where's the one who's wise? Verse 20. Remember, in Corinth, they prided themselves on how progressive they were, how wise they had become. And so Paul asks, where's the scribe, the learned one, the educated one in your day? Where's the debater of the age? Paul's asking, who of you is up for the challenge to engage in this conversation with me? And yet he seems to say, before you do, you might want to realize that God has flipped the tables. Because verse 20 ends, has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And how has he done that, you might ask? Well, the one way that he's done that or that we can see that he's done that is that you cannot know God through wisdom. You can know things about God. You can see the beauty of his creative power. You can see that he reigns. There's a common grace in the world, but you can't get a saving knowledge through wisdom alone. Paul will make that point uh, over and again in other places. But here, he simply states that the wisdom they have doesn't accomplish their desire. Uh, Those in Corinth were interested in truth, believed they were sincere in their pursuits. They liked to to dialogue and to discuss, and they wanted to find God, I'm sure. It's just they were going about it in ineffective ways. And Paul says, it's folly then. But even more so, it was more than just ineffective. It didn't give them what they wanted, but it also brought them to what they didn't want. Their wisdom didn't just not save them, but it also led them to their ruin. Most translations say, to those who are perishing in verse 18, but you could actually translate leading to destruction or leading to ruin. This wisdom that they had is leading to their destruction because they refuse to consider the cross. They refuse to hear a word of the cross. They, they want to hear something. Verse 22 tells us that. The Jews want a dramatic miracle. They want some amazing experience that will overwhelm their senses into belief. And for the Greeks, they want to be argued into believing. If only Paul or Apollos or whoever it is, if only they can impress us enough, then we'll believe. Of course, we all know that that doesn't really work that way. And it can't work that way. A blind person can't see a miracle sign. A deaf person can't 
hear brilliant wisdom. Because of that, the message and the preaching of the cross became a stumbling block and a folly. F.F. Bruce notes that the canons, the things they believed in, what they held dear, the canons of the first century, the Greco-Roman culture, were those of power, wisdom, reputation, and values. And he states, quote, nothing could be more subversive to these canons than a proclamation of a crucified man exalted as Lord over the universe. It was a stumbling block to the Jews because they knew Deuteronomy 21, 23. They knew that God had declared that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And in their mind, how in the world could Messiah, the blessed one, the anointed son of God, how could one blessed be cursed? They couldn't see past their ideas. They couldn't see the Passover lamb. They couldn't see the scapegoat that would take the sins into the desert. They only could see a political redeemer. And so they lost sight of the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the Greeks thought it folly. They knew crucifixion only is brutal and abhorrent. Uh, Old Testament or New Testament scholar, rather, Andy Thistleton, he writes this. He said, quote, Crucifixion was so offensive to good taste that it was never mentioned in polite society. Crucifixion was so brutal that it could never be imposed on a Roman citizen. So because you could never speak about it in polite society, you could never include it in a debate. It was folly to do so. The Greeks, itching for a polished, eloquent argument, were deaf to the gospel of Christ crucified. But God has turned things upside down. Verse 21 reminds us that while the world couldn't know God through their wisdom, God was pleased through the folly of the preached word to save. And we see in verse 24 that God went ahead and saved both Greeks and Jews anyway. This is the power of God. This is the wisdom of God. He saves those who can't hear and can't see. Suddenly their eyes are open, their ears are unstopped, for God is in the process of making fools wise. And that's the flip side of Paul's argument here. The same message of Christ crucified, foolish to one, is full of power for those who are being saved. Some have lamented that Paul used that expression, those who are being saved. In verse 18, they they hope for something stronger, something more definitive. And I would say if that's a concern of yours, I'd like to encourage you with two things. First, Paul uses something more definite in verse 21. There he uses a verbal tense which indicates a completed action in the past that still has ongoing effects. If you look at that verse, you could break it down. It pleased God to save. And by implication of the word used, continue to save. But also in verse 18, the tense that Paul uses can carry a meaning of both past, present, and future. Somebody shared with me this helpful analogy. He said, suppose you found yourself having to jump overboard from a sinking ship out to sea. In your flailing and desperation, when the lifeboat came and pulled you in, you would say, I've been saved. 
And then as you realize that this lifeboat was rowing towards where an island was in the unseen future, but you knew that they knew where they were and they knew they were going, you would say, I am being saved. And when you could see the island, you could look towards that time when you were standing on the shore, you would say, I will be saved. Paul uses that same tenses of past, present, and future. One scholar suggests that this type of word is being used here to give us both a proper assurance and to prevent arrogant presumption. The past reality, the ongoing present, and a hope for the future is how we are being saved. Paul continues to highlight the impact of the cross, and I'm quoting Thesselton here again. He says, it's a reversal of all natural human values, end quote. It's as if when we see ourselves as strong, we'll say to the lifeboat, actually, I'm good. Let me just swim a while because I'm a great swimmer. Or if we see ourselves as really wild, we'll try to solve this problem. I'm pretty wise. Maybe I can quickly train a dolphin to save me. Or if we're really wealthy and powerful, we'll be like, I'm good. I got my phone. I'm going to see if I can charter my own rescue. Paul cuts into that arrogance. He interrupts our arrogance and reminds us, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak to shame the strong, what is low and despised to bring to nothing the things that are. God performed the rescue. When you think about the way God rescued us, it's most incredible. God rescued through the death of his son. Again, it's upside down. He doesn't bring life with life. He brings life with death. It's the death of God, the crucifixion of Christ that purchases our life. And it's the resurrection of Christ that defeats death. And in doing all of this, God makes us wise. Because he makes our salvation, he makes his word effective in our life. And as a result, we no no longer need to chase the wisdom of the world. We no longer need to chase after the things of the world. Our priorities can finally be righted. Indeed, God's salvation impacts us in many ways. Paul introduces several key areas throughout the whole letter, but here the biggest change that he wants to speak about is in what we boast. It's a section of contrasts where the wise of the world boast in their advantages, the wealth, wisdom, strength. But that's all ineffective because it does not help them find the God that they're actually looking for. And so Paul says, you're fools. On the flip side, the low, the weak, the despised, in essence, the one the world looks down on, God is pleased to draw them and to open their eyes and to let them see, to speak a word of power into their dead lives and bring life. God's word is effective. And because God did it, it's now folly to boast in oneself. The worthy boast is only a boast in the Lord Jesus. And as we begin to understand that and to grow in our understanding of that, we ought to see some changes. We ought to boast in the Lord 
and glory in the Lord because we ought to find that the Lord is the one we love the most. Jesus in Matthew 6, 21 reminds us, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we might wisely ask ourselves, where is our treasure? What is it that we truly treasure? What is our chief joy? What is our greatest delight? What do we glory in? Another change that we might expect to see is how we view and treat others. Do we see people as the world does? Someone to have power over? Or do we see people the way Christ does? Someone for whom to use their power for? Indeed, our church has a couple ministries, Refuge, Turning Point, Refuge kids that are a perfect example of the difference between the worldly wisdom of power over and godly wisdom of power for. James reminds us of the evil and the temptation to show partiality. And we ought to expect that when we recognize that it was the Lord who reached into our lives and who has done these great things for us, Why do we show partiality? That ought to change in our lives. One scholar notes that to focus on the cross replaces, quote, emphasis from achieving with an emphasis on receiving, end quote. And here I'm reminded that some people have a very difficult time accepting gifts. They always want to repay gifts. They always feel in debt when someone gives them a gift. I'm telling you that for the believer, this will only end in madness and frustration and despair. How can you repay God? In fact, if you think you can, you have both underestimated your sin and his salvation. You've likely heard it said, the cross did for me what I cannot do for myself. Salvation is a gift from God. And to rest in the acceptance of that gift is both a truly beautiful and peaceful thing. God has given you life. Notice also in verse 30 in our text, he's given us more than just life. He's given us, Christ in fact has become for us righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we are accepted in Christ's righteousness. That's what God sees now. We are being made into Christ's image through the gift of sanctification. Doesn't always feel like the best gift, but it is in fact the best gift. And redemption means we are now in God's hands. New Testament scholar Craig Bloomberg, he wonders, he says, if we agree that the Lord has purchased us from bondage, that's what redemption means. If we agree that we are the Lord's, won't that knowledge, quote, that we are in the Lord's care free us from anxiety, end quote? Do you really believe you are in the Lord's care? And if so, won't that free you from anxiety? Ought it not free us from self-blame, self-reproach, and, and I might add self-praise? This is the Lord who has done this great thing 
in our lives. He alone is worthy of praise. And if I can circle all the way back to my aunt again, in my late teens, she lost everything. She was a widow. Her late husband had provided for her well with incredible insurance policies. And so I knew her as the rich aunt who was a widow. She was conned out of everything by her patient boyfriend, dated for six years, married for six months, and he took it all. She went from wealth and glamour of a New York penthouse to just barely able to rent a small, humble home in a tiny town in North Carolina. But God captured her attention, drew her to himself, It was when she was weak and low that what she had mocked, Christ crucified, what had seemed so foolish was now the very thing she cherished. And for the rest of her life, she loved to praise her Savior. She died rich in Christ. A few years ago, uh, William, Sam, and I had the joy of meeting her. And even though she was beginning to fail in her health, we saw a beautiful woman, cared for by a local church, confident in Christ, and boasting in his crucifixion. Paul wants us to look to Christ. And as we do, all the divisions, all the anxiety, all the the partiality, all those melt away as we boast In Christ alone, let us pray. Father, indeed, you have done a great work in our lives. And we rejoice. We don't know the half of it. But Father, you have loved us with an everlasting love. And you have given us your son, Christ Jesus. You have flipped the world upside down. You have shown your strength in our weakness. You have shown your wisdom in our folly. You have shown riches where there was poverty. And Father, with your love, because we are in your care, we can never be overcome by this world. Father, thank you for your son, Christ Jesus, crucified for us that we might live. It's in his name we pray. Amen.